This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome to the Pollock Theater. My name is Joe Palladino. I'm the co-curator of our Beatles Revolution series. And it's uh, my great pleasure to have this film, as we were talking about the series, this was the first film we thought... Let's break from the canon to show this film because it's not just a love letter to the Beatles and to fandom. It's sort of a time machine that goes back to a certain <laughs> era and to a certain event, and an event that everyone you know, remembers where they were when they saw it, even if they really didn't see it at the time. <laughs> yeah. so, so it's great. And tonight we have two wonderful guests, uh, actress Nancy Allen, whose, whose films from... Carrie and Robocop and 1941, another great favorite of mine. And, you know, tonight's film. And then Bob Gale, the co-writer and executive producer of tonight's film. Associate producer. Associate producer, sorry. As well as co-writer on the Back to the Future trilogy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, TV shows, some of my favorites, amazing stories, and Kolchak the Night Stalker, one episode, which is great. And then from also... DC and Marvel Comics. We're both on both of those. Yes. So I'd like to welcome Nancy and Bob. Thank you. So, Bob, starting with you, thinking about uh, your kind of comic book reference, what would you say is the origin story of this movie? (laughs) Well, the origin story of this is uh, one night, uh, Bob Zemeckis and I were sitting around in my apartment and we pulled out the Meet the Beatles album and the back the back of the album you don't you don't get this anymore with downloading music and CDs the back of the album had this whole uh, story about Beatlemania in in 1964 and we were reminiscing about that and we said boy I wonder if we could come up with a way to tell a story about girls waiting in line to see the Beatles in 1964. And that was sort of, oh, that's, that's, that's an interesting idea. And we like the idea, we, we've always liked the idea of uh, what we call a bottle movie, where a story takes place in a limited amount of time and space. And we were big fans of American Graffiti. It took place all in one night. So we started thinking about how could, how could we do this? How could we tell this story? And that's the origin. <laughs> that's great. And Nancy, for you, for your career, you're coming from the thriller, the uh, Stephen King, Brian De Palma film, Carrie, and then you're coming into a comedy. And can you talk to me a little bit about how you, know, how you came into this film? Well, you know, after Carrie was such a success, and mm-hmm. after that film for the next year and change, I was sent every script for every teenage horror <laughs> movie, whatever. And I didn't, I thought, I've done it, I don't want to do this. And uh, I actually uh, originally heard about this script uh, because uh, Brian De Palma was reading. He said, Oh, I just read something really interesting, a lot of great parts for women in it, and uh, and then the next thing I know, shortly after that, I got a call to come in for casting, and that's how it came to me, and I went in to read for it. That's great. And then, Bob, the uh, this film originally started with Warner Brothers, and then there was trouble with Beatles music, and were they at all concerned of, you know, there was three female leads? The, no, no, the story is this. Uh, we set the project up at Warner Brothers. Um, Bob Zemeckis and I thought, okay, a movie about girls trying to see the Beatles, let's see if we can find some female producers, because that would be an irresistible package. And it was. We had met uh, Alex Rose and Tamara Sayev uh, a few months before. So we had written the script. We brought it to them. They loved it. They said, yeah, let's... They had a deal at Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers said, okay. Um, But... (coughs) Warner Brothers said before, actually we did not have the script yet, we, we just had a pitch and Warner Brothers said before we write you guys a check to start writing this script, we better make sure we can get 
the Beatles' music, because if we don't get the rights to the Beatles' music, there's no movie. And we couldn't argue with that. Duh. <laughs> uh, so it took eight or nine months for the legal department at Warner Brothers to get to clear the music rights for the for all the music that's in the that's in the movie. So we were actually down in uh, we Bob and I were down in uh, Mobile, Alabama, where Stephen was shooting Close Encounters. We were doing rewrites on 1941 for Stephen, and we got the phone call saying, okay, they got the music rights cleared. You guys come on back, and you got a deal to write the script. So we came back We came back to California, and we wrote the script. And then um, we showed it to Stephen. And Stephen loved it. And Stephen said to Bob, you know, this is a perfect movie for you to direct. It was your first directorial uh, debut. And Bob said, well, yeah, Stephen, but... Warner Brothers has a policy against first-time directors. They'd gotten burned on a lot of on a lot of movies. Uh, how am I going to do it? And uh, Stephen did something that you're not supposed to do. <laughs> he called up uh, he called up Ned Tannen and Sid Sheinberg at Universal. Ned Tannen, who was a president of production, and he said, uh, "Ned, read the script." Um, I can get you this. I can get you this project with a first-time director. So Ned reads the script and he loves it. And of course, Warner Brothers doesn't know anything about this. So Ned said, "Yeah, okay, we'll make the movie." And Stephen said, "I'll executive produce it to guarantee that Bob will do a good job." And uh, so here we had this go picture at Universal, but the movie was stuck at Warner Brothers. <laughs> and um, we got our agent. Uh, Jeff Berg uh, to go and, and Stevens' agent Guy McElwain, they went to the top brass at Warner Brothers all the way up to the chairman of the board who was uh, Frank Wells and they said, uh, look Frank you know, how much money are you going to make off of this movie? This is not going to cost a lot of money. You're interfering with careers here hmm. and Frank said okay um, I'll let the movie go I'll let the project go <laughs> So we moved over to Universal. That's great. And Nancy, central to this film are these great female comedian roles. Can you talk about, you know, that that ensemble cast and Wendy and Susan and everyone and just uh, and Wendy Anderson was was seventeen at the yeah, time. Yeah, it was uh, uh, actually a terrific cast. Obviously, mm-hmm. yeah, everybody yeah. played their roles really well, and we were um, we all really enjoyed each other and worked well together. Um, it was just, it was really a lot of play every day. And of course, it starts with the script. The script worked. The words were there. The scenes were there. Um, you know, so we didn't have to figure a lot out on mm. this, just our characters and bring something to our characters, which I think everyone did amazingly well. And, you know, Wendy's, of course, uh, one of my favorites always because she's just she had such remarkable natural skill. She just lights up the screen. And she she's does, so and she was so you know so free. She could do anything, and uh, uh, so I think that um, since the story was there, the script was there uh, on a daily basis. Uh, Bob Z would just say, "Hey, you know, what are we going to do?" Or he'd come out with an idea, or if something didn't work. Bob Gale was there, and we'd change a line, rarely, but it would happen, because <laughs> it really was a script that worked. So um, we just had a great, a really great time, and it was very physical and really funny, and everybody watched everybody do their work and, and uh, exchange ideas. So it was, uh, it was kind of bittersweet watching it tonight, because oh. Wendy's gone, and yeah. Teresa's gone, and Dick Miller, uh, who yeah. plays just the... Just passed away, just recently. Just passed away. But, uh, you know, the work lives on, which is so great. Yeah, that's great. And then, Bob, to continue about uh, Steven Spielberg, the relationship that you both had the, uh, with Spielberg earlier, so it starts a little earlier with you're getting ready to do... Well, Steven, we, we got to know Steven <clears throat> um, through our, our screenplay 19, 1941. So that's... Um, and, of course... Uh, half of the cast of I Want to Hold Your Hand ends up in 1941 because Stephen was so was so taken with everybody. He said, "Oh, I got to put I got to put all these people in my next movie." Um, 
so it was just we we hit it off really well with Stephen, and um, he was uh, he was just excited about about this project, about the idea that this was the first movie that he produced as as that he wasn't the director on, mm-hmm. and um, you know when you get started in in the in the movie business, you remember what it was like. When somebody else got started, Stephen remembered how he got started, and okay, this was an opportunity for him to break somebody that he thought was going to be a terrific talent, and uh, nobody could watch. Nobody could watch. I want to hold your hand and not see that uh, Bob Zemeckis was a brilliant director. Between the way that he did the barbershop scene oh, yeah. and yeah. and the Beatles performance on the Ed Sullivan Show, the cinema that he understood intrinsically separate and apart from the fact that he got such great performances out of everybody it just you know it just spoke miles of of uh, how talented how talented he was and still is and can i just say they were 26 years old wow when they did this movie <laughs> and so this is his first yeah. feature that he's directing and so for for you as an actress for him coming in as that in that role and for these roles that have just Tremendous physical gags and all these different things going on. How? What was your interaction between you? Well, I'll tell you a funny story <laughs> about the first time I met Bob. When I went in for the reading, I was called in. I was walking down in the halls of Universal, and um, this really tall, kind of skinny, geeky guy with glasses <laughs> is walking down the hall. He goes, oh, hi, you're Nancy Allen. I just love you and Carrie. And I said, oh, thank you. And he went away, and I went into the casting office and signed in and... Uh, and Sally Dennison came out. She says, "Okay, come on in now." And I walked in, and it was that guy. I said, "You're the director." You know, this is just like a 26-year-old kid. And uh, you know, I remember—I uh, couldn't tell you what it was that I read, but I remember reading. And he gave me a direction in the office, and I thought, right then, I thought he really knows what he's doing. And that's the one thing that I'll say is that every single day. Bob knew what he wanted to shoot. He knew how he wanted to shoot it, and it was just about executing it. So he was, um, uh, from my perspective, you know, follow the leader. I mean, he was definitely confident and knew what he wanted, which is very comforting if you're an actress, because if the minute you feel that somebody doesn't know what they want or what they're doing, you just like you completely shut down. You know, that's great. And and this film's about a great writing team, Lennon and McCartney. I know we've got. A great writing team that's writing it. Can you tell me a little about you know? So you guys are. What were your roles as you develop a project? And is what were your what were your your particular strengths? Who brought what to what as you were looking at? Well, um, I've always heard these stories about uh, writing teams where one guy writes one scene and somebody else write, the other guy writes the other scene. That we didn't work that way at all. We sat in a room together and we talked through every scene. We first we outlined everything on index cards, and um, we had a very unique bunch of index cards for this one because when you, when you um, plot, out the, plot out a movie with index cards, we put them up on a bulletin board, you can basically edit, edit the script, edit the movie by moving the cards around. So as a visual tool for us, we gave each of our four main characters a different color card. So we could always say, okay, we, have, we can't have two scenes with Rosie next to each other, and her cards are pink. So we, you know, if we saw that we had put these two pink cards next to each other, well, maybe we had to have two scenes between that. We, we could actually just see the color of it and know that we were doing it the right way. So the idea that... Um, we start with all these characters at the very beginning, and then at the very end, they're all back together. Um, they come together, they split apart, and then they come back together. This is, you know, perfect structure. Yeah, it's great. And there's, like, such uh, perfect little setups for different things. You know, you have Dick Miller talking about his lamp that he's just bought, and then you knock the lamp off, you know, mm-hmm. and then there's the, the lightning that sets up these chains. So there's a great feeling of, when you see it again a couple of times, you, you see sort of, like, this perfect little structure to it. So I imagine that takes yeah, quite a bit to bring to it. We learned all that stuff from watching Frank Capra and Billy Wilder movies. You know, the 
Those guys were geniuses at, at setting stuff up, and you just learn from watching great the great masters uh, and the great masterpieces of comedy how how to do that stuff and how how well it works. And um, yeah, and, you know, Bob was a great stabilizing force because Bob Z was always busy with the next setup and everything, and you know, the fact that Bob was there. Bob, this Bob, <laughs> was there every day and there making sure that things were being facilitated and, you know, watching out and taking care that things were moving along. And it really, he was, he was a stabilizing force, really. Good. And then comedy, as you talk about this, you're, so you're shifting into comedy. What do you, as an actress, is there something that, uh, do you like more of a, what sort of role do you like? Or do you approach comedy in a different way? What can you tell us about that? Well, I think you just have to bring the, you know, the bring the truth to the character, uh, and if the script is there, the comedy will work. In this mm-hmm. case, it really did. You know, it's like you look back. I see things that I might have done or cho- made different choices, uh, but um, again, you have to put it all out there and then trust that the director is going to keep the keep you going in the right direction. The thing that the, th- the thing about the comedy in our movies. Uh, and again, you see this in, in Billy Wilder's work, too. Um, the characters are all taking themselves very seriously. You know, nobody's making jokes. They're, when, when Eddie Deason says, I know the law, he, you know, we're laughing at him, but he's, I know the law. Uh, all, everything that the characters do, they're taking themselves very seriously. So they're not mugging, they're not winking at the camera. They're just they're they're there. They're doing this, and from what the audience perspective is, we find it funny. Uh, and I think that that's a style of comedy that I think um, uh, actors and actresses can really can can really do. They don't have to. It's it's so much different than you know what Bill Murray does or something. You, you don't have to be able to. Do a stand-up routine. You just have to be uh, talented and uh, you know know your lines and don't bump into the furniture, as, <laughs> as Spencer Tracy was fond of saying. And, and a- we had the we had the advantage. Um, uh, guys, pet peeves always. Uh, you know, I like the Three Stooges, but my girlfriend's my girlfriend won't watch it. Right, um, but. Nancy, Wendy, and Teresa were all big Three Stooges fans. So, so when, when Bob Zemeckis would say, all right, I want to do a slapstick thing like the Three Stooges, that's all he had to say. They knew, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And when you pop around the corner and the yeah. three of you, you, you can see the Stooges there, and it's yeah. like, oh, here's this great people. Yeah. Uh, comedy and research and like all the little fine details, Eddie Deason's room where there's all of those props, and then he's popping off, and he's going, how tall is, you know, and he's, it's all in there. There was a ton of research that went into this. Yes. Both from writing the script and then actors looking at, you know, what was the, the times. Can you talk a little about research for both sides of, like, you know, putting research to the script and then looking at, you know, your character and building your characters? Well, I lived it. <laughs> I lived it. I was, I was 14 in yeah. 1964, so, and I was in New York City, so I remember... Uh, what it was like, what it felt like, the Beatles albums coming out. And, uh, you know, we had the advantage of uh, being shown movies, uh, films, uh, newsreel footage of uh, kids. and Like, that's the scene where the one girl is saying, well, I want to marry John, and, well, his wife could die, or she could be hit by a bus, or, you know, whatever it is. These, these were real, I mean, this was really happening. Those were real scenes that were going on. So um, it was pretty easy for me. I was a little older than Wendy. Wendy was only 17, turning 18. I was a little older than that. But uh, uh, I was very much... Pam, that's who I was. My father was a New York City cop, so I was always the one going, you know, well, we can't do that. We'll get in trouble, or, or we could get arrested, or, you know. And that's who I was, so it wasn't much of a stretch in that department. <laughs> Good. And for Bob, if you're looking at the... At we we tapped into, the uh, into Beatles fan clubs. Uh, we found these old Beatles magazines, and we... 
somehow, I don't even remember, oh, there were, there were these Beatles conventions. And we went to one of them, and we connected with some of these, some of these girls. We got some of their old fan letters, uh, and we just incorporated all this. We just absorbed all this stuff and incorporated everything that we could uh, in, into this to try to recreate the mania and the insanity. Mm-hmm. And recreating, you do uh, often, I think, in your films, there's a great bit of recreating a past thing where... There's someone interacting with a piece of the past that's actually there. You know, in the case of the, there's the footage of the Beatles at the Sullivan Show, and then you're all in the audience in the Sullivan Show. Is it? Uh, can you talk about the challenges of, you know, kind of creating? Well, there, that there's a the, there's a very interesting story about about this. <clears throat> Here we are. We've got the project set up at Universal, and uh, the legal department always vets every script to make sure that. They're not going to get sued. And the legal department said, you can't make this movie. It was the first movie in the history of Universal where the legal department said, we are telling you don't make this movie because the Beatles could sue and they have enough money to sue Universal and they could win. And (laughs) um, so we were told that finally, that we could make the movie, but we could not show the Beatles on stage. And the way the movie, the, the movie that, that we saw is exactly the way Bob and I had conceived it. But we weren't allowed, the, the legal department said, nope, can't do it. And Bob and I actually, the whole Beatles performance has to be shot, shot only on the audience. You cannot show the stage. Mm-hmm. And we thought to ourselves, wow, if we do that, if we build up, if we build up to this, I mean, talk about coitus interruptus. My God, <laughs> this is, the audience is going to go to tear up, they're going to tear down the theater. They'll be so pissed off. But we also said, when are we going to get another chance to make a movie? So let's, you know, let's roll the dice and see what happens. So we actually shot the movie the way Universal's legal department told us to, without only on the audience. And we cut the picture together, and we showed it to Sid Scheinberg, the CEO of uh, MCA Universal. And he said, you guys are right. We need, we need to see the Beatles. And he said, uh, screw the legal department. Go shoot it. And if the Beatles decide to sue us, I will be the man who reunited the four Beatles to come together in a courtroom, and I'll have the movie rights to that trial. So we said, great. And uh, we, uh, we assembled. Any, anybody in here remember uh, an old TV show called Leave it to Beaver? Yeah. Okay, well... Beaver had this friend in the later episodes named Richard, uh, uh, played by Rich Carell. Uh, and it turned out that Rich Carell was a total Beatles fanatic. And I don't even know how we found him. He choreographed the uh, four guys who were the Beatles lookalikes uh, doing She Loves You to this to this footage. And you know, we... we uh, we prepped and shot this thing in a week, one, one day of shooting, and it was great. That's right. And Nancy, talking about build-up of a character, your character is great, and that it's got that sort of like, this is what you're going to do, mm-hmm. and then it's just you just kind of open up further and further in the film, the you know into the hotel room, and then that wonderful um, interview, you know, where you're at the <laughs> press, and there's that great smile. Can you talk to me a little about your your character, would you? I mean, it's great to have a character that has a has a turn, that has an arc, and uh, you know, going into it, I could see. You know, I, I mean, I love that actually Bob Zemeckis talked about her and helped me uh, see that the scene in the um, in the Beatles hotel room isn't just that. It's just it really represents the loss of six, the loss of uh, innocence in the 60s, and it's a big turning point. And I think from that moment on, 
she slowly comes to the fact that what is she doing? There's a whole world out there, and it's great to have that that moment. And I think if we're lucky, um, certainly growing up when I did uh, in the you know in the fifties and early sixties, uh, many of us had that moment. Like, hey, wait a minute. I don't think this is what I want to do. I want to do something different. So it was great to play that out. Yeah, it's nice in a way that, uh, you know, as you think about fandom and communities, you know, they, they sort of come together as like a, a group, but each individual out of this film kind of like gets a different thing out of it, but they sort of come together. And I think it's a, and I said, I, I think you both have been involved with fan communities from your past films. Can you talk a little bit about fandom that you've experienced? Well, uh, <laughs> it seems to me that, uh, you know, there are, I mean, certainly there are many, many fans of uh, a number of films that I've been in. And I, you would think from some of the movies that I've been in that they would be a little bizarre, <laughs> but I've always had really nice, respectful, basically people who are very uh, knowledgeable about film. And interested in films, and know more about the films than you do. And I've had the opportunity to meet, you know, different fans through the years, particularly now with all these different conventions for things. And and people will tell you things about the movie, about your character, about all this stuff that it's almost like a revelation to hear it, you know. But it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful feeling because I. I am a big fan of movies, a huge fan of films. I started from the time I was a kid watching films over and over and over again. So um, I, um, I certainly relate in that way that I have a great respect for the work. I don't know about the obsession. Yeah. Uh, that I don't really quite understand. But uh, I appreciate it because, no. you know, <laughs> I support the films. But I don't, yeah, I don't, um, yeah, I don't get it. I don't get that part of it. Like, mm-hmm signing something or whatever. It's just I'd rather shake your hand and talk to you for a minute. Mm. You know, but it's uh, it's uh, certainly a whole world of it out there now. Yeah, in a big is. way. Yeah. I know, Bob, I know last time we brought you here, someone had built a, a DeLorean and they parked out in front. You know? and so you've seen a lot of uh, Back to the Future fans. Yes. that comes from that. Yeah, well, it's... You don't know... As... as as a filmmaker or as a performer, you never know how what you do is going to affect other people. And when it has a positive effect, when it's very meaningful, um, the fact that they want your autograph or they want to take your picture or they want to do some, build some sort of shrine or whatever, um, because it makes them connect with the first time they saw the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, really. Mm-hmm. If that's, you know, it's, <laughs> they're not robbing a 7-Eleven, okay. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's, it, it helps them recapture something that they loved uh, and they continue to love and then they find more and more and get more out of it. Um, say as, as as long as as long as they keep it at that level, it's totally it's fine. It's sort of to your point when you mentioned earlier. Everybody knows, like I can remember. I can remember driving home from my cousin's house with my parents, racing home to see the Beatles. Yeah. And that is the point because every time I've met someone who is a fan of a film, they want to tell you the first time they saw the movie and why the movie means something to them. It's, it's, it is. It relates to a moment in time yeah. of their life. It's, it is an interesting thing. It was a wonderful experience. Our first film, uh, a lot of the people in the audience had seen them live in different places, and so they were each kind of relating their story of like mm-hmm. being in that moment at that time. And it was really it was sort of like a very bonding thing for the audience members. Mm-hmm. Nostalgia. Can we talk about for this, the kids that probably don't know, Murray the K. So <laughs> casting Murray the K, they, you know, the, the fifth Beatle, who, they won't know maybe who Murray the K was. Can you guys talk about Murray the K a little bit? Well, I certainly grew up with him in New York. He was the top DJ in New York, and he brought the Beatles. He, he yeah. was... <clears throat> I didn't know anything about him, because I grew up in St. Louis. That's, <laughs> that's where I was. 
And I guess I'd heard about this guy who was called the Fifth Beetle, but whether he probably came up with that himself because he was a big self-promoter. But when we dived into the research and we discovered, yeah, this guy uh, uh, really was uh, a huge booster of the Beatles and really pumped up the New York public and all of his fans, all everybody on the radio, about about the Beatles. Uh, if you go on YouTube and put Murray the K in there, there's there's some videos and there's some uh, copies of his, of his old records where he was interviewing the Beatles. Very interesting. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we had uh, we we got him to be in the be in the movie. Um, he uh, he was wearing a toupee, and uh, his hair was too long. His toupee, the hair on his toupee was too long. So uh, our hairdresser said, uh, "You know that's not accurate to the period. Could you take it off?" He refused to admit that he was wearing a toupee. <laughs> And he had the hairdresser cut his stupid. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a little bit about Eddie Deason and Bobby DeChico. It's going over in 1941, but if you could talk a little bit about uh, Eddie and, uh, and Bobby, you know, and just uh, experiences with them. Well, <laughs> just say there's really only one Eddie, and none of us had met him. Uh, only Wendy had met him, and she had been rehearsing with him, and the I my the first time I met him I remember we were all in a van I don't remember where we were going but we were in the van and Eddie was in there and he was saying well what about this and how about the publicity and is anybody and Wendy said see I told you (laughs) (laughs) you know but he is he is probably the one of the sweetest people I just I really love him I'm still in touch with him actually and and he's uh, obviously a brilliant Talent, I think. <laughs> he came in and did the reading. The, the character was actually based on a, on a kid I knew growing up who was a Star Trek fanatic. Uh, and he would... Everything that, everything that uh, the character in the movie does with the Beatles, this guy, his name was Dave Klaus, so the last name... I, 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 use, I use his last name. Um, everything... With Star Trek, he did everything with Star Trek that Eddie does with the Beatles, so it was real easy to write the character because <laughs> I I really knew this guy. So Zemeckis comes into my office and he says, "Bob, I I want you to see this casting tape. I think I think we found Klaus," and he plays back Eddie's audition, and I was laughing so hard I was on the floor with tears in my eyes. I just said, cast him, cast him, cast him. <laughs> One of the things that, uh, as I watch the movie, there's, like, there's this tension, you know, as it's, we're getting close to the events, and that tension like, comes out of, you know, some of the times those great crowd shots where you're getting everything that's going on, both the crowd shots outside the hotel and the crowd shots in the Sullivan Theater. And it, uh, it's just this, almost the, the mob becomes its own character. Can you talk a little bit about the those scenes well one a, a couple of the gags I, I we have to we have to give uh, we have to give Steven Spielberg uh, credit for for two of the great crowd gags uh, the one where the cleaning lady is sticks the mop out the window <laughs> Stephen Stephen came up with that one and the one where the cop steps on the girl's toe and she screams and everybody screams um, <laughs> It was, uh, it, it was, and, and we shot this, it was hot. Remember, everybody had to wear oh. these heavy coats, yeah. and this was, none of this was shot in New York. Uh, lots of people see this, and, they, and I, I think even the IMDb page says that uh, some of it was shot in New York. None of it was shot in New York. We scouted New York. It was too expensive for us to go there, uh, and we recreated the Ed Sullivan Theater on the Universal back lot, the exterior of it, and copied all the storefronts that were really there. They weren't exactly in that order. But anyway, we got we got these crowds, and all these girls, <clears throat> the hardest 
one of the hardest things we had to get done. Uh, I remember this so vividly. The signs that the that the girls were all holding up, you know, we, we love the Beatles, all that. Uh, our prop guy had uh, signs done at the Universal Sign Shop. Well, this is like asking a professional musician to play wrong notes. They can't do it. Uh, professional sign painters can't do a sign that looks like a kid painted it. So these signs came back, and they looked all too professional. And, uh, and we, said, we, we said to Vic Petratos, the prop guy, we said, do you have kids? He said, yeah, my daughter's in junior high school. We said, well, go to your daughter's junior high school and get the class to do these signs. <laughs> and that's what he did, and that's why the signs look, look real. <laughs> And Nancy, you've done a lot of ensemble films, and this is a great ensemble film. Uh, how do you, I mean, you talk about riding together in the van at the first point. How do you start to build that, that team? You know, you always start to understand who each other are as actors and who we are as characters. And... Well, if, uh, if you're lucky, uh-huh. uh, the director brings everybody together and you have a rehearsal period and time to work things out and, mm-hmm. and get to know each other a little bit. And we did have that opportunity on this film. We did on Carrie as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that that reflects in, it reflects in the movies. You can see, you know, there's a chemistry. Yeah. Um, you can't make it up. And mm-hmm. it's either there or it's not there. And it starts really with the casting and rehearsal period. But um, I, I love it. To me, that's the fun of it. I love the collaboration of film uh, and uh, the creative process, and people sharing ideas. Oh, that was great. Oh, why don't you try this? You know, just really, and not not feeling that you can't um, give people feedback. You know, it's coming from a really productive and um, well-meaning place, and everybody just wants everybody else to do well. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. You know, and you all in this film have this moment of shining. You know, there's all these different moments. And Bob, there's like everyone has a sort of moment. You know, like. The scene where he's, uh, where he's, you know, taking his little last drink before he goes up <laughs> to the room. You know, the uh, uh, she's realizing that oh, there is something to the Beatles. You know, so it's. Um, I guess that's again that that the moment of like structuring something. You, you guys really think about it is it stuff. is, and, and if when I talk about screenwriting and people say, well, what what are the most important elements of screenwriting? I'd say there's three of them. Character, character, and character. It's all about character. The plot will follow. The plot can be terrible if you love the characters. Um, that's why we watch. That's why we still watch Seinfeld. You know, there's doesn't matter what the plot is. We just love those characters. So, for us, in in structuring it, and one of the things that we thought about was okay, we all, all four of the girls have to be a little bit different. They have to be motivated differently. Um, and by the way, each the, the first initial of each girl is the first initial of, of the four Beatles. Oh. Yeah. Ah. Pam, Grace, Rosie, and Janice. Ah. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yes, we, we looked at each character and said, okay, where do they start from? Where are we going to take them? Uh, where are there moments? Um, because when you have a well-drawn character, people just love to watch them. Good. And, and you see, this might be kind of a very similar sort of question, you know, the character, character, character. For you, if you're reading a script, what is the thing that sort of like this is, that sort of triggers it for you as you're looking at something? And, um, what draws you into it? Um, when I first read a script, I read the script. Mm-hmm. Do I want to make this movie? And if I pick it up and I have a hard time turning the pages, it's going to be a problem. <laughs> um, uh, it certainly was not the case with this. And so you read it through, and uh, generally, I will connect on some some kind of emotion. It'll trigger some emotion, memory, feeling, thought, or um, curiosity mm-hmm. about wanting to know more about a type of person to dig into it a little bit, you know. Um, but it has to start with, can I get through the script? 
And so you've got the script, and you're, this is something you're excited about. What's for you? I have a couple of students who are, you know, looking at acting. What's the, what's the next step for you? What do you what do you take it from at that point? I guess I I, I try to I really try to look at what's missing first, mm-hmm. because very often if you have an ensemble. Or a lot of times in certain things, maybe the woman's role isn't the most important role. What don't I know about this person? Mm-hmm. So I start to fill in the blanks and write, a, uh, I don't know why, but I just started writing biographies of the character. Like, mm-hmm. oh, who is she? What about her family? What does she do in the morning? What does she eat for breakfast? Just kind of making her more real to me. And, um, but there always has to be something in the emotion of the character that connects uh, for me uh, or I, it's, it's really hard to approach it. And then I like to find, and it, it was easy, I didn't have to find it, it existed in this, but I like a character that has either a change or a goal or something that is a little bit different than where she started out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, and I want to find something that's different than I did before I wanted to, I don't want to do the same thing again, and that's it's hard. It's hard to find all of that stuff. Well, I think it'll be time to like ask a couple of questions from the audience. You talked uh, about the innocence of the period in the film, but it occurs to me that it's also when you were filming was an innocent period too. Looking back on it now, it's two years before John Lennon was was savagely murdered. So could you kind of talk about your reflections of, of how things have changed over the course of your career? Like, how do you do comedy when, when times seem dark? <laughs> uh, well, I think you need, first of all, you need it even more than uh, I, I um, find myself looking for lots of things to laugh at these days. Um, <laughs> well, actually, you don't have to look too far. A lot of it's very amusing. But, uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, and unintentional, yes. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to really uh, talk about that, except that, you know, I'll just, what, I'll, what I'll say is that, yes, it was very innocent then, uh, even though I think, you know, this was 1977. Was it 77? 77 or 78. Well, we, yeah. So, yeah, we started 77 and ended up in 78. Uh, when the movie came out, and certainly looking back now, that seems really, really innocent uh, by uh, standards of even how things evolved in in the community, in the Hollywood community, because after that period, things really sort of got, started getting very dark, uh, as I recall, in the 80s, this late 70s, early 80s, and there was a very different, different uh, tone uh, on sets. I mean, it was, you know, it was the, a lot of people coming out of the, the, the 60s, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So, and, and you started to see that show up in movies, too. So, um, you know, but, uh, yeah, in a way, of course, that time was also a really prolific period of filmmaking. I mean, look at the people that came out of that period. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm certainly nostalgic for some of those days. Well, it's our, fun our, to watch those movies now. Our, our memories are, are selective, of course. Uh, when, we, when we think of the past, <clears throat> and you, know, you talk about, well, it was an innocent time. Well, yeah, but in 1968, uh, I mean, JFK gets killed in, in 63, and RFK and Martin Luther King get killed in 68. So we had the Vietnam War going on. So there's, you know, it's only innocent, really, when we think about ourselves, I think. I think there's always, there's always dirt and corruption and crap and crime and all, all that stuff. It's, it's always been with us. And if you're really young, you don't see it. Uh, and when we think back on it, we choose not to remember it, because why do you want to remember that stuff? Um, but you also think, as, as Nancy said, that... Some of the movies of the 70s, um, some absolutely great movies. This, this was um, 68 or 69 is when they started the MPAA ratings. Um, 
which was one of the best things that ever happened because now we could make R-rated movies. Now you can make Midnight Cowboy. You could make The Wild Bunch. Okay. You could make, you know, so some really dark, go to some really dark places. But, uh, you know, these are some of the great, great movies. And they were exciting because this was the first time filmmakers were getting a chance to do that kind of stuff. So it, it's, it's like everything else. It gets all mixed up. <laughs> You sort of comically tore the heart out of the question that I actually wanted to ask, which was also about kind of the way in which the 70s show up in the film that's made about the 60s. So how did the kind of production time that you were existing in uh, kind of appear in the film itself? But I'll also throw in kind of a secondary question since you answered a lot of that uh, in, in what I was just asking. So I had, I had um, first of all, did the Beatles ever see the film? Do you know, did you ever hear anything from them? You never obviously heard from the legal department, but did anybody ever get back to you to tell you that they had seen it? And then also, kind of as a writer, what did Beatlemania do for you and your ability to sort of write a madcap, screwballish sort of comedy? Uh, how did that sort of, you know, odd psychological social moment sort of play into your process of writing? Well, the first, the first question, the, the story I heard, uh, unverified, but um, it's, it's pretty believable. Uh, uh, our, one of our producers, Tamara Sayev, told us that she had had uh, lunch or drink with uh, a guy named Jack Schwartzman, who was Ringo Starr's uh, either manager or attorney. And uh, Schwartzman said, uh, you know, um, the Beatles saw the movie and decided not to sue. And uh, as a good lawyer response, because Tamara had a law degree, she said, well, of course not. You had no grounds, <laughs> which, which she's right. What, what, what damages would the Beatles, could the Beatles possibly assert? We show them in their public image. They're heroes. They're great. Everybody loves them. Where's, where's the lawsuit? So, so that's the answer to that one. And in terms of, 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 of this sort of madcap uh, Beatlemania as the, as the background, um, you know, sometimes you just sort of take the subject and it kind of tells you what it has, what you have to do, uh, which is always the best part when you're writing a script. When one, when the characters are so well developed that you know exactly what they're going to do, you don't even, even have to think about it. You say, oh, yeah, of course. You know, Pam is going to say, we're going to get in trouble. We can't do this. It's obvious that's what she's going to say. Or, because of this presence of the Beatles, um, we described, Bob and I once described this movie as a combination of American graffiti and Ben-Hur. Because in Ben-Hur, Jesus is all over the place, but you never see his face. Hi, uh, love the film. Questions for Nancy, I guess. Um, so, so many comical scenes in the movie, but there's also seem really physically challenging. I want to know if you did your own stunts or you had stunt people in, in general. Did I have any stunts? I fell down. I really fell down. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Really, yeah, Wendy had stunt a stunt person. <clears throat> I didn't really go through any of the physical problems. My biggest problem was the scene by myself. That was really, that was one big stunt for me. But uh, yeah, no, but there was definitely great stunt people in the film. Les Leslie Hoffman was, uh, was, was Wendy's, Wendy's stunt double, and she went on to work with Wendy in all of her movies. Yeah. Uh, and she did a bunch of other stunts throughout the picture. She was just, um, we saw her at that We Spark event. She, we she came in. Yeah. Uh, a wonderful woman. Too. Right, the she 1941. Yeah, she was on stage for that. Yeah, can we take a moment and talk about We Spark? Oh, sure. Uh, well, you all watched the amazing Wendy Jo Sperber in this film, and um, at the height of her career, when she was 37, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she had two young children at the time. They were seven and ten years old, and what she realized was that it didn't just affect her; it affected her children her parents, her brothers, her sister, her community. And um, nothing existed at that time except for, you know, if she wanted to go to support groups, she could. 
or if a hands-on caregiver wanted to, they could. And so she was determined that she was going to create this. And if anybody here has been through either cancer themselves or with someone in their family, I know I did with my father, you know it's just you don't know what to do. And, and um, so she said, Wendy did not understand the word no. It was not in her vocabulary. So she said, I'm going to create something, and everything's going to be free, and anyone whose life is being affected by cancer, they're going to have services. So um, in the late, I guess it was like in 2000, we did a big fundraiser, in fact, up here at Glen Annie Golf Course, uh, Glen Annie uh, Golf Course in Goleta. And uh, Wendy raised the money and in 2001 opened the doors of WeSpark Cancer Support Center, which is in Sherman Oaks, and um, asked me to get involved with her as a, she said, you're into all that woo-woo stuff. You can help me figure out what the <laughs> programs are going to be. And uh, that was in 2001. And she was, with the doors opened, she was re-diagnosed, stage four, lived another few years and passed away. And um, anyway, I've been there ever since, and I'm now the executive director. We serve over a 1,000 families a year, and it's an extraordinary place, offering all kinds of services, a lot of integrative uh, therapies and modalities, which are not covered by insurance. And um, it's a really amazing healing center. And Bob, the Bobs, all the Bobs, Stephen, everybody, Tom Hanks, who Wendy worked with in Booz and Buddy, a lot of people still support the organization. So she left quite not only a great legacy of work, but a great legacy for this going to go on and on to help many people. So it's really an amazing place. Well, that's great. Now, one more note you're from... You're working on something right now. We'll just talk briefly about that. And oh, I think, yes. 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 Um, <clears throat> yeah. What, what, what are you doing right now, Bob? What are you doing right now, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm involved in uh, mounting a stage musical of, based on Back to the Future. We're going to do it in England first, and uh, knock on wood, it'll be a big success, and uh, we'll get it over to New York, and... Eventually, it'll tour and end up here. So um, that's uh, a good year away before it can open in England. And then uh, who knows how long. These things take a really long time. I thought getting a movie made took a long time. (laughs) Uh, But it's going to be great. We can all plan for Bob Mania and go to London. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like to thank uh, the, the... Staff out here, the uh, the Pollock Theater, and Nancy and Bob. Thank you you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.